So essentially what we built um, is a product that connects patients in the United States with physicians in Mexico, and then also bringing in fully licensed physicians in the United States to complete the loop. And utilizing that outsourcing cost arbitrage, we're able to provide medical care in an unlimited basis for actually a cost that's you know, not significantly more than Netflix subscription. And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. Devin Huff started in Oxnard, a majority Hispanic small California farming town. Now, he is the CEO of MiSalud, a new digital health startup. And today, he is our podcast guest. In this episode, we cover how and why Devin left full-time surgery to found Mi Salud, which means my health in Spanish. I also asked him for some life and career lessons. Here's our conversation. Well, welcome, Devin. Thanks for joining me from Buffalo. Thanks for having me. And so I'm really excited to uh, have you on our podcast because uh, you have quite an interesting story. Uh, if we can maybe start uh, from a little bit about your background, your personal story uh, that lead you to where you are today here. Yeah, happy to. And thanks for having me on the podcast. Very excited to be doing this. So I usually start my story back in the town that I grew up because it's pretty important in terms of where this company came from. Um, the town I grew up in is about an hour north of Los Angeles. It's called Oxnard. Um, and what's interesting about Oxnard is that it's a farming town. It's about 70% Hispanic. Um, and the majority of those people are, uh, are Mexican backgrounds, and a lot of them are migrant farm workers. My father and my grandfather were both physicians for this community. So after I finished off high school, I went to college and then, you know, went off to medical school, um, planning to follow in their footsteps. Uh, I ended up becoming a surgeon instead of a uh, family doctor. I guess uh, sometimes life has different plans uh, for us. Um, but, you know, it's, a, it's great. And after finishing training, I went on to, you know, to practice surgery for about 10 years. I'm pretty happy with that career. And then COVID came along and COVID kind of changed everything for all of us. Um, and, you know, in about six months into COVID, I started talking with a friend of mine from high school. Um, and he's a, a friend of mine who has a very interesting backstory. And I, I don't want to go into it too much because he probably has one of the most interesting family stories of anyone that I've ever met. Um, but he's a friend that I've known since about we were about 12 years old, and his parents were migrant farm workers from Mexico. Um, and so they kind of were on the other side of the coin in terms of the uh, uh, healthcare uh, discussion. Um, he went on to Stanford after high school, planning on becoming a physician as well, but instead started uh, got swallowed up by Silicon Valley. Um, and so he's had a very successful career. He started at Google and has had a couple of successful startups. Um, so he gave me a call because... He wanted to talk about things that we could do to address some of the problems that have come out of COVID, specifically regarding the Hispanic population. Uh, and I'm sure you've seen the numbers of how terribly the uh, uh, the pandemic has affected the Hispanic population. More than triple the mortality rates, more than double the uh, hospitalization rates, like really kind of incredible things. Some of that just comes based on the industries that, you know, that they're working in because, you know, frontline workers are just going to be affected more. It's hard to stay home and do your grocery clerk job 
from uh, uh, from a Zoom meeting. Um, but a lot of it too is the health inequalities that have been facing um, this group for forever. Um, and we've known about these things for a long time. We know some of the statistics. I mean, 23% higher diabetes rates, um, more higher rates of uncontrolled hypertension, higher rates of uh, obesity. Um, but we've kind of ignored them and told ourselves it's not really that big of an issue. And COVID came along and showed us that it really is kind of a huge deal. It turns out that when people have these underlying health conditions, they are far more uh, drastically affected by a respiratory virus. Um, and we learned that very early on. So my friend and I started talking about things that we could do to address this problem. And it turns out that right around the same time we were learning all these uh, things about COVID, digital health was exploding, again, because of, uh, because of COVID. Um, and so we started saying to ourselves, is there a way that we can utilize digital health to address some of these problems facing this community. Um, and so we did a whole lot of research into the space, um, and we came up with a very unique model that allows us to provide healthcare um, in a way that really no one's ever been able to uh, uh, to do before. Um, and so we grew the company, we, we built a product, uh, built a team, and um, now we're actually uh, at the point where we're signing our first contract. So it's a very exciting time for us. It is indeed. It's very exciting. So there's a couple of things that uh, you mentioned. I, I was intrigued that the fact that you met your co-founder when you were 12 years old. Have you always been in touch since after high school? Um, no, it's actually kind of a funny story. So after high school, um, you know, we stayed in touch for probably a year or two. But this was back in the times before social media and Facebook. And so the way you stayed in touch with your friends is when you came home from for, for Christmas, you called their parents' house. Um, and so we did that for a couple of years. And then we just sort of uh, fell out of touch. Um, fast forward about five or so years later, um, I actually don't even remember why, but I started thinking, you know, about him and thinking, I wonder what he's up to. Um, and so I typed his name into Google um, and I, you know, learned what he'd been up to for the last couple of years. And I actually reached out to him through the contact us link on his current company site. And I said, um, please tell your boss that Devin Huff is looking for him. <laughs> and, that's, <laughs> and that's how we uh, reconnected. That was probably five or six years ago. And since then, we stay in touch periodically. We bounce ideas off of each other. Um, we come up with a couple ideas for companies that weren't very good um, and didn't pursue any of them. Um, and then, yeah, we just started talking towards the beginning parts of COVID and really coming up with um, a big problem. And it, it it made a lot of sense. And so we actually decided to move forward with it. Uh, so the other things that I, what caught my, you know, be, during the COVID, everybody was saying about, oh, you know, this whole COVID, uh, you can see the numbers. Uh, a lot of the challenges that faced by, say, the Hispanic community, you as a physician, you know, the challenges has always been there. Why it took a COVID to kind of make everybody more aware about it? Or is it because all this time people just close their eyes? I think it's a little of both. I think that, the, like I said, the numbers have been there. We've known these numbers for years. And I think that people were unwilling to take on such a difficult problem with something that they were able to tell themselves was not all that big of a problem. But something that we learned very early with COVID is that minor issues with your health could be disastrous. And so you could have a almost perfectly healthy 29-year-old 
who happens to be 50 pounds overweight, and then that person dies from COVID, whereas somebody who's not overweight, you know, it doesn't doesn't have any issues. And so these things that seem minor were just massively amplified by this particular virus. Um, and I think it just really showed us um, that this is a big problem. You just don't see it until something like COVID comes along. So I think that's how we learned from it. And you think it's because uh, the fact that now it's out there and people are more aware about that. Do you think people who are interested in solving this problem tend to be people from the community? Because I think sometimes it's hard to, because you said it's not an easy uh, problem to solve. And it takes somebody who have to really care to want to solve this problem. And that's why it helps. You know, I think this is a, a really a good a good lesson is that our team is very uniquely situated to uh, uh, to help with this. And the reason is there are people from the community who try to help. And when I say that we lie to ourselves and we've been ignoring this for a long time, that's really the medical community. There's people in the community that have been trying for years to do things. The problem is they don't necessarily know what needs to be done. Um, and so we have this very unique connection of, you know, being connected with the community, but also having uh, vast knowledge of the medical system. And so that's why we were able to come up with a uh, with a solution that works specifically for this community. It really took some uh, some outside of the box thinking um, to put together our, our our program. Maybe this is a good segue for uh, you to tell us about your program, about Me Salute, and what specifically your uh, solution and what problem you're solving? So essentially what we built um, is a product that connects patients in the United States with physicians in Mexico. What's difficult about that is obviously there's licensing issues. And so what we did is we have the physicians in Mexico do the part that you don't need a license for. So teaching people about healthy living. So um, eating better, drinking more water, exercising, getting better sleep, personal relationships, all these things that are extremely important for health, but that's not considered you know, medical care in quotation marks. And this is a model that's been done very well by a lot of companies. Livongo is sort of the poster child for it. Livongo did the incredible thing of treating diabetes without licensed providers. Um, and they did it exactly in this way, and it's incredibly effective. And so what we did is we said, we're going to utilize this idea of having unlicensed practitioners take care of this part of medicine, but doing it with fully trained physicians, and then also bringing in fully licensed physicians in the United States to complete the loop. Because there's going to be times when you're doing so well with your diabetes that you need your medications adjusted, or maybe you're doing poorly, you need, medic need medications answered. And so we can close that loop with our physicians in the network as well. And use a lot, utilizing that outsourcing cost arbitrage, we're able to provide medical care in an unlimited basis for actually a cost that's, you know, not significantly more than a Netflix subscription. And why is that, do you think, is important to have, uh, let's say, the wellness, the education part is being conducted by a physician in Mexico? So the advantage of using somebody in Mexico is the cultural component. So we know that people have an affiliation when they have the same background as their physician, then they're more engaged. And really, all of these things that we're doing are working towards engagement. Um, and there's good research out there that when a, when a patient and a physician have the same cultural background, 
the patient is more engaged, the patient is more likely to follow up with the physician, they're more likely to follow the physician's advice. Um, and so providing that cultural connection um, is, is a huge advantage. There's also the inescapable fact that medicine in the United States is absurdly expensive. And so going back to the idea of people crossing into Mexico, some of that is cultural, but most of that is cost. And so by doing this model, we're actually able to provide a cost arbitrage that really is uh, more substantial than anyone else would be able to do by utilizing the current U.S. medical system. And how do you solve that cultural gap for the physician here that is part of the MISALUD program that's not in Mexico? We actually utilize physicians in the United States who are immigrants. Um, so our model is designed so that we don't need very many U.S. physicians. So part of the problem with working with underserved populations in the United States is they're underserved for a reason. There's not very many Hispanic doctors. There's not very many black doctors. There's not. Fortunately, there are more female doctors uh, now, so that part's been solved. But if you're in one of these populations that doesn't work well in the U.S. system, um, it's because there's not enough physicians out there. And so we've designed our model so that the majority of the interaction is happening with the physicians in Mexico, and the U.S. physician has a much more limited role, which of course is the way it should be. Most of medicine should be wellness and uh, better eating and that sort of stuff. And so we actually recruit um, bilingual physicians, uh, many of whom are immigrants from Mexico themselves. Um, and so that maintains a cultural component even on the uh, U.S. side. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rudnick's Global Life Sciences Group a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. Do you have any example that you can see being a physician and being part of MISALUD now, uh, example that you see the difference cultural from a patient who are Hispanic, from Hispanic background, immigrant versus your family? The biggest difference in the cultural aspect really is the Hispanic culture is a much more intent and in getting to know you type of culture. So a really good example that, uh, that I always give is if I'm passing somebody in the hospital um, and somebody says, how are you? The expectation is that I'm not even going to slow down my walk. I'm going to say fine and keep walking. When somebody says, como estas in Mexico, that's a conversation starter. It really means, how are you? Tell me about your family, what's going on with your life. And when that's the culture, Walking into a doctor's office and having the doctor say, what hurts? My elbow, go get an MRI and come back in two weeks. That connection just doesn't work. And we get this feedback from our patients all the time that they tell us that when they speak with our physicians, they say, wow, he actually listened. This person actually cares what I have to say, cares about me as a, uh, as a person. And it's funny, when we talk with our physicians in Mexico, they're, they don't think they've done anything special. They say, yeah, that's all I did was just talk to him like any other patient because there's a getting to know you personal connection that we just don't get in the U.S. medical system. And um, you or anyone who's listened to this that's been to a doctor lately knows exactly what I'm talking about. It's what's the problem? Okay, let's get your solution and get on to the next person. I have 40 people in the waiting room. 
I need to see all these people so that, you know, so we can keep the lights on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's not a pleasant uh, conversation when you're sick and you're not well uh, to be brushed off like that. Um, so do you think, uh, I know your focus is in a Hispanic population, but like I said, human is human. We all like when some people listen to us, we are heard instead of going to a doctor that like, what do you, what do you need? This is the solution. Just go away. Uh, do you think Misalit will expand beyond the Hispanic uh, immigrant population? Absolutely. One of the things that we stumbled upon, as I mentioned, is the very large cost arbitrage of utilizing um, physicians from other countries. Um, and so, Obviously, it's not just people from Mexico that have this problem. Like throughout Latin America, I mean, if someone is uh, has a Filipino background speaking with a physician from their home country, like this can very easily be expanded into all different sorts of cultures. And really, the American medical system is Western European. Um, and we talk about using physicians in UK, Germany, other parts of, uh, uh, of Western Europe. Um, the cost savings is not quite as large. But there's no reason that we can't have English-speaking people from the uh, from other countries. For example, our current physicians in Mexico are all fully bilingual, um, and so there's really the ability to take on a completely new view on what the medical system in the United States should look like um, by focusing instead of spending large amounts of money, really just giving quality care, um, even if for you and doing it from a uh, even when you're doing it with a lower uh, a lower cost associated. Mm-hmm. I mean, how big is the Hispanic population that you're targeting here in the U.S.? Well, the Hispanic population is about 62 million currently. Um, in terms of where we're targeting as a starting point, it's the uh, working population because we're working with uh, with businesses. Um, so really, the very immediate starting point is the 30 million Hispanic workers, but expanding into the other uh, uh, the other 32 the other 30 million as well. One of the things that we learned during the COVID time is that. We all, everybody talk about telehealth and uh, many of the underrepresented is also the certain population. They don't even have access to the internet. And how do you address that with my salute? So interestingly enough, the Hispanic population over-indexes with smartphones. And so it's kind of funny. This is a story that our, uh, our head of marketing tells is that his father-in-law, doesn't know how to use the internet, but he knows how to use Facebook. And so when it comes down to it, they using a smartphone is something that's actually very, uh, very easy for them. Now, there is going to be a population that doesn't have internet access. And one of the things that we're doing in order to address that specifically is setting up uh, console areas in pharmacies. So there's pharmacies that are in uh, in these particular neighborhoods, and we can just the way the same way that Rite Aid might have a uh, place where you can check your blood pressure, we can set up a, uh, you know, an iPad. Um, and then have the employees there know the basics of how to use it, and then set someone up in their own set, set someone up in their own little cubby, and then they can have a uh, conversation with a physician, you know, from their own country. So, assuming that you, what you're saying is that many of the uh, for the education part uh, is being conducted by a physician in Mexico, and the one that's more the licensed part that is conducted by a physician here in the U.S. Um, Again, bringing up the whole idea about the healthcare costs, as you know, the cost of medication pharmacy here in the U.S. is really high. Is that part of the thing that Misalud is doing as well, or that is not out of scope? No, 
one of the really cool things that we uh, that we also do is we take cost to consideration when we're prescribing medications. And that is a mind-blowing idea in the United States. Essentially, the, most doctors are completely unaware of what things cost. And so they prescribe what they've seen on TV or what's being uh, sold to them by, uh, by the pharmaceutical reps. And to be fair, those are the newest most effective medications. But when I say most effective, we're talking about improvements that are 1% improvements in effectiveness for a 1,000% increase in price. The reality is there are plenty of medications that have been around for 10, 15 years that cost pennies on the dollar, and they will work just as well for almost everybody. And being aware of something that simple, you know, and you can give a really easy example is Prilosec instead of Nexium. Um, and Nexium now is a, is a generic, but when Nexium first came out, we all saw those advertisements for the purple pill, and that was 10 times the price of Prilosec at the time, and Prilosec was a, uh, was a generic. So keeping those things in mind, we can actually cut costs way, way down, even when people don't have insurance. And in terms of the regulatory, with the regulatory body, is this something, is that going to be problematic, or how does it how you check how do you tackle that yeah we work very closely with our our lawyers on this um there's really there's no regulatory body who's keeping an eye on these sort of things but we're making sure that we do everything above board again we're following the same model that's been used with companies like uh Livongo, like i mentioned but ginger health has a very similar model with mental health where they have behavioral health coaches but they also have licensed therapists and so there's no great guidance from the law in terms of what needs a medical license to do and what doesn't. And so we just follow established precedents and we make sure that we do what everyone uh, before us has done and we follow those rules. And we make sure that we're you know monitoring the physicians and monitoring our coaches and make sure that they're doing everything exactly the way that they uh, that they should be. Yeah, and this is this is exciting. I think maybe we're going to segue to a little bit more about um, your experience, how you know this is is this your first time? being in a company because you've always been a physician and a surgeon, which takes a long time to get to. What is it like? What's the what's the difference between being a surgeon and running a company? It's a very, 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 very different. <laughs> There's it it really, you know, people ask me a lot, you know, how did you how did you decide to do this? You know, leaving a surgery career to to become an entrepreneur, and it's funny at the at the time. Part of it is it seemed very obvious to me that this was a good idea, um, and it was actually very easy for me to just kind of say, "Yeah, okay, we should do that." This seems this seems reasonable, but I think part of it is I didn't know what I was getting into. Mm-hmm. Um, launching a company is very very difficult, and I'm not saying I would have not done it if I had known, but I you know maybe it wouldn't have been as easy as a uh, as a decision because. The reality is, you know, as a as a surgeon, um, it's very busy. It's very hard. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I can sign out to my partners who are on call, and I get to go home for the weekend. And you know, I still worry about the patients that are in the hospital, but I at least get to kind of relax until it's my turn to be on call, and then I take everyone else's problems for the for the weekend. But my point is, there's at least downtime. When you're the CEO of a company, there's no downtime. Like there's 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 a drive to continue working and really not go to bed at night because there's an unlimited supply of work that needs to be done. And so the amount of discipline to say, okay, it's midnight, time to turn it off and go to bed. Um, and to kind of just realize that the problems that are still there are going to be there in the morning. Um, 
it's it's very different mindset, and it's uh, it's kind of exciting to be doing something so different. So, do you start me salute when you're still uh, doing your clinic, or it kind of you kind of go cold turkey? Is it get done I'm just with the surgery, and I'm just going to f- focus on me salute? So at the time when we started, um, I was actually in the middle of transitioning between hospital employed and a private practice. So as I phased my way out of my hospital employed practice, um, I essentially just started phasing up me salute. Now I actually still take a weekend of call every month um, just to sort of stay in the stay in the game. Um, so I am still practicing as a as a surgeon, but just very very limited hours. What are the similar skills that you you have as a surgeon that you apply uh, as being a, an operator for a startup? And what are the things that you know as a surgeon that is part of your nature that you need to get rid of because you need to start a startup? So, I mean, I think the things that are similar are, are dedication. Um, so it's it's very difficult to become a surgeon. And it's not like it's difficult in that Obviously, you have to know, be good at taking tests and you have to be good with your hands and all those sort of things. But really, it's the dedication of getting through the long road because it's a very long road. So the minimum amount of time to become a surgeon once you leave high school is nine years. And that's if everything goes exactly as planned, if you don't do any additional specializations. I mean, there's people that spend 20 years getting to to start their surgery career. So it's a very long road. Um, and you really can't screw up along the way because if you do, then doors start to close. Um, and I think in that way, it's very similar to starting a company because this is not something that's going to be a six-month journey. Like This is a very long road of getting all these things working together, piecing these components together. Um, and we're learning an entire new world while we're doing it. So, you know, with surgery or medicine, you know, you start medical school not having a great understanding of the human body. And four years later, when you graduate, you know, you kind of know, I can't say everything about it, but you know a whole lot. And similarly, we're entering this entrepreneurial world where you don't necessarily know a whole lot of the way it works and learning it as you go. And that's not, like I said, a, uh, it's not a short process. In terms of things that can go as a surgeon, um, I don't know. <laughs> That's a uh, there's a lot of ways I can answer that, but there's a uh, there's a mentality as as a surgeon that um, I am always running the show, and it needs to be that way because you know when you have a human body in front of you that's you know being I don't want to get too graphic, but you understand where I'm going with this. Like there's one person in charge, and everything falls on my shoulders. Um, and it's not like that with a company, like you have to be willing to delegate. If I try to take on every responsibility, then the company will fail in two weeks. Um, because you know, it needs, there's, I don't have the knowledge to do all those things. And so leaning on the team, um, is a huge benefit of what, uh, what we do. Um, and that's actually been something that's difficult for, for me to, uh, to deal with, because like I said, I, for the last 10 years, you know, we do what I say, and it's not that I'm not willing to listen to other people's advice. It's just that, you know, people will listen. And if I say do this, then it happens. Um, but now I have to listen to everyone else and say, okay, I don't know what to do here. You tell me what we're going to do. And okay, that sounds reasonable. And how do you make that transition and change? Because if, you know, 10 years is a long enough time to make that as a habit. And that's part of your nature go-to that you have to change. I think it's one of those things that it sounds very difficult to do because it is. But there's also no choice in the matter. So I would say a similar comparison is people have asked, how do you work for 24 hours straight? Because that's part of doing surgery training. 
And the answer is, I don't know. I didn't have a choice. Like nobody said, hey, would you like to go to bed at hour 19? It's like, (laughs) no, you need to learn how to stay up 24 hours and continue working. And it's the same thing here. I mean, we've been at this now for a little over a year. Um, If I hadn't learned right away how to start listening to people who knew more than I did in their field, you know, the company would have crashed and burned in three months. Um, And so it's sort of a bit of a trial by fire where if you can't do it, then you're in the wrong wrong area. So... I, I know we are short on time here. Um, I want to ask you, what are the top three uh, advice that you can give, especially for clinicians who are interested in starting a company or running in a company? I think one of the biggest things to consider is that it is a complete, complete change in what you're used to. Um, and it's funny. This is sort of the same thing that somebody told me when I was uh, getting ready to have kids. Say it's not when you have kids, your life completely changes, and it's not necessarily worse or better. It's just different from anything you've ever experienced before. Um, and that's what launching a company is like. You really have no idea what you're getting into until you do it, and then the life before all of a sudden disappears. And so you have to be ready for that. And I think if you if you are and you approach it with an open mind. Then, um, then you can do it. If you, if you think it's going to be something that you're going to continue your life as it was before and just work on this little project on the side, then uh, I think you're in for a, uh, a world of surprise. Cool. I know I said last question. Can I sneak in one more question for fun? Um, is that I was wondering, do you have, say, like a mantra that you repeat when things are tough? <laughs> Uh, one of the things that I've always looked to, one of my favorite athletes is Lamar Jackson. And the reason he's, uh, he's a quarterback for the Baltimore Ravens. And besides being an incredible athlete, he has a shirt that he occasionally wears at press conferences. And it says, nobody cares, work harder. And that is a, uh, it, it's very inspirational because when it comes down to it, there's always an excuse. There's always something that's not going to go right. Um, and when it comes down to it, you just need to fix it. And if there's a problem, you have to figure out a way, uh, uh, a way around it. And that's something that I uh, um, always try to keep in mind. By saying nobody cares, work harder. <laughs> yep. That's good to know. Well, thank you. Uh, I think that, um, I'm going to try to use that for my next uh, tough times. I'll just say like nobody cares, work harder, which is true. I think I, sometimes we like to think that a lot of people remember a lot of things we say, but actually we remember it more than other people. (laughs) And that's how reality works. So thank you, Devin. Thanks for your time. Thanks for sharing your story. This has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.